Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Conservative Catholics aren't really what we think about as the dominant force within the Christian right. Right? Like that space is occupied by white evangelicals. But there's a, a longer story here about really, we can think of white evangelicals and conservative Catholics coming together as a coalition. This is Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. President Donald Trump is hoping to replace a liberal icon on the Supreme Court, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with a conservative judge, Amy Coney Barrett, who, at 48, could shape the court's leaning for a generation. The Catholic Church is very well united on this. They are so thrilled that Amy was chosen. They are so thrilled. And if she's confirmed, she'll be one of six Catholic justices out of nine on the bench, five of them appointed by Republicans. This is essentially, you know, a few decades of institution building that's been dismissed or gone under the radar. That's Joshua Wilson. He's a political science professor at the University of Denver. And his focus? The conservative legal movement. You know, a lot of the work is just getting students to understand, you know, the judiciary and law, it's complex. Now, there's been a lot of conversation around Trump's nominee Uh, even before she actually was the nominee, about Catholicism and anti-Catholicism and how her religious views do and don't impact her decision-making and how that's going to come up in confirmation hearings and the role in the 2020 elections and on and on. Today, we're going to cut through the political noise and talk about how we got here, how conservative Catholics, through years and decades of network building and movement building have risen to the top of the federal judiciary. And there's one particularly important group in the middle of that. That's the Federalist Society. One of the ways that the Federal Society rose to power and legitimacy was by saying that it was politically neutral. It can't make that claim anymore. This hugely influential group started almost as a sort of debate club about four decades ago. A network of conservative law students at some of the most prestigious law schools in the country. And this might have gone under your radar. Here's Tennessee Democratic Congressman Steve Cohen testifying last week on judicial independence. What you have done with the Federalist Society is the end of the Supreme Court as we knew it, and you should be embarrassed. That's spicy stuff. So, Josh, can you bring us up to speed here? One of the really fascinating things about this, conservative Catholics are not the biggest subgroup in the Republican Party. So how did we get to this point? The way you've written about it, this isn't a conspiracy. This is a question of supply and demand of judges. Exactly. Um, no, that's a, that's a really good thing to point out, actually, at the beginning, is a lot of times uh, people's reaction to, to things that I write about is that there is this kind of grand conspiracy. And it's definitely not that. This is basically just it's strategic behavior of people who have kind of studied how how movement works and how influence works. And you're also really right to point out how conservative Catholics aren't 
really what we think about as the dominant force within the Christian right, right? Like that space is occupied by white evangelicals. But there's a, a longer story here about really, we can think of white evangelicals and conservative Catholics as coming together as a coalition that create Christian conservatives. And conservative Catholics arguably had more visibility earlier, but they've become eclipsed by white evangelicals over time as white evangelicals have come into positions of power kind of in the anti-abortion movement. And then within kind of organizing general electoral politics institutions, like when we think about things like focus on the family, right? But the reason why there still is a heavy reliance on Catholics in the judiciary is when we think about the Christian right developing kind of experts and resources over time, conservative Catholics have a really big head start on white evangelicals, particularly in the legal arena. There are all sorts of forces that basically kept conservative evangelicals out of law school and kind of out of the legal profession or kind of marginalized within the legal profession over time versus conservative Catholics. And so if you're a conservative president and you want a social conservative appointment with a particular kind of religious orientation, then you have a really deep pool with conservative Catholics. And so that's where we've seen them go repeatedly over time. I want to jump back to something you you just said about where this is all stemming from. And you, you wrote recently about this very important quote in the history of all this from Timothy Floyd, that the legal realm was seen as, quote, too corrupt and worldly for a Christian to be able to participate. Who is Timothy Floyd, and what did he mean by this, and what did this lead to? So he is a conservative religious law professor, but he's part of a movement that really came out of religious lawyers in the 1990s, a little before the laughter, there was this feeling that you couldn't be a good Christian and a good lawyer for multiple reasons. Some lawyers who are devout would talk about how they couldn't express their religious identity within the legal community. So part of that is social. Christian conservatives are really marginalized in that group because they don't fit with a lot of the other groups within the conservative coalition. So if we think about business conservatives and libertarians, they have different upbringings, different geography, different values. And so there's a bit of division there. And so oftentimes devout lawyers would feel that they had to kind of keep their Christian identity secret. Another tension that was there is around things like pro bono work. It was said by interviewees that they couldn't pursue pro bono cases that related to kind of Christian right groups, right? That that was discouraged by others within, let's say, their law firm. Another thing was just the idea of the worldliness of law, that this profession is associated with greed and aggression, really, right? The idea that our legal system is an adversarial one. You know, we can think about some of the tropes talking about lawyers as like attack dogs, right? Or hired guns. There's this idea that you go out, you serve your client's interests, and you present the most aggressive case that you can. And that is also viewed as being in tension with kind of some Christian ideals. And so the quote you read is from part of this movement, actually, that we can see, again, conservative Protestants and conservative Catholics trying to reconceive of law and legal practice in ways that would fit more with their religious identities. What's the timeline here? Like, when did this start to change? And what was the process? 
A good starting point is really somewhere in the 1990s. And part of what you get in that period is this reconceiving of law and this idea that you can now conceive of law as a religious calling, which is, you know, familiar language for devout Christians, right? No longer did you have to conceive of law as this separate thing that you did, but rather it's the way that you can kind of live out your spiritual life. There are a couple different ways of doing that, and they basically run a spectrum from, on one end, this idea of fostering Christian fellowship. So, right, connecting Christian lawyers so they can be together and they can commiserate and they can talk about the challenges they face and so forth. At the other end of the spectrum is a politicized version of this. And you see this really fitting with the emergence of a Christian conservative legal movement that fits with the greater Christian right. And so this is that idea of you going out and being a culture warrior in the courts. And then there's kind of a third track that's somewhere in between that's more of a progressive, liberal understanding of Christianity and, again, how you can serve out those Christian ideals through your legal practice by serving the poor, say, right? But when we're talking about judicial appointments and kind of what gets us to the present day, the best place to focus there, then, is on this reconceiving of law as a calling as part of the Christian right's mission to kind of change the country, and as they often say, to change the culture. The timeline that you're talking about is very interesting here, because you're talking about the 90s and the early 2000s is when this really took off or coalesced. And if you look at the age that people look at as optimal for appointing Supreme Court justices at this point, uh, the late 40s, early 50s, people who are going to be around on the court for a while, you're talking about this movement springing up and, and really coalescing when the folks coming through it now, like Amy Coney Barrett, were able to come up through this their entire legal careers. Yeah. And part of that shows how Amy Coney Barrett is both part of this world and also separated from this world to some degree. So another thing that's happening at the same time, right, 1990s into the 2000s, is you're also getting the creation of conservative Christian public interest legal organizations. So for example, Pat Robertson helps found American Center for Law and Justice, which is essentially his conservative Christian response to the ACLU. And then we eventually get other organizations as well, like Alliance Defending Freedom and so forth. So you're getting this building of a litigation infrastructure. Another thing that you're getting is the emergence of conservative Christian law schools. So Pat Robertson's Regent University acquires a law school. Jerry Falwell starts a law school. So there's this, definitely this pipeline that's being built over this time period, right, to not just organize existing Christian lawyers, but to start to create Christian lawyers that can then feed into this. And you're exactly right to talk about how now we're far enough away that early graduates from these programs should be hitting mid-career here, right? Should be ascending to positions of power. And there definitely are. But here's where we can get back to Amy Coney Barrett and what's different about her and what's kind of similar. She pursued a much more traditional track, right? She went to Notre Dame Law School. Notre Dame is an established, prestigious law school. Whereas if you went to a regent or a liberty law school, right, that's taking a big risk. That's removing yourself kind of from the legal mainstream and trying to take this wholly Christian conservative route. And the legal community really is built off of cultural capital. What school did you go to? What clerkships did you have? Where do you work, right? These are all elements of prestige 
which come out of places like Notre Dame and that places like Regent and Liberty are outside of. And so we can see somebody like Amy Coney Barrett as going this more traditionalist route. And this also then goes to the initial question of kind of why conservative Catholics? Well, conservative Catholics have long had a place now in these traditional legal institutions. They've graduated from the Harvards, the Yales, the Stanfords, and the Notre Dames of this world, right? And so they have that traditional legal credentialing that makes them better suited as judicial picks. Now, one kind of last wrinkle here, though, is even though I've talked about these as being two separate tracks, we can also see their convergence in Amy Coney Barrett. Alliance Defending Freedom has this training program for law students called Blackstone Legal Fellowship. She served on the faculty. So she's been part of the training and the building of this pipeline of future Christian conservative lawyers. What impact do you think her appointment and the attention that it's brought to these efforts this movement will have on it going forward? That's a good question. And there's two different ways of seeing this. One is, for those kind of inside the movement, those who are attracted to the Christian right, this is a huge victory. It's validation of decades of work, right? Exactly. It's validation of, of decades of work. It's another important person in an important position of power that can be used as a resource to continue to build this movement, right? I'll jump back to Blackstone as an example again. One of the things that Blackstone does is it tries to network people into internships. And another traditional avenue in law to prestige is judicial clerkships. And the biggest prize there is a clerkship on the Supreme Court. You now have another justice tapped into this network who can serve as an entry point for others so that's that's really big. On the other side of this is this is essentially, you know, a few decades of institution building that's been dismissed or gone under the radar. But as these groups continue to succeed, essentially, continue to place people into positions of power, right, it raises their profile. And that sets up the scenario really for there to be backlash. And so the more attention that comes to this, those who are basically on the other end of the political spectrum have another institution or set of institutions to look at, to be critical of, and to pay attention to. And so this is all feeding into the continued politicization of the judiciary and of the courts. Absolutely. When you say that this movement was dismissed, what, what exactly did you mean by it being dismissed? Yeah, so I think it's both outsiders and insiders to a certain degree. Okay. So outsiders in terms of like, these are marginalized schools. When they get public attention, they're oftentimes negative public attention. I can't remember who gave this quote. It's somewhere in the book, but talking about one of these schools as, quote, a Jiffy Lube law school. Yikes. So that's kind of that outsider, you know, like these people lack prestige. We don't need to pay attention to them because they won't have power. Well, you know, certain groups within this movement have taken that as a problem to be corrected and have done various things to basically better position graduates and kind of people affiliated with the movement to have more traditional credentialing so that they can be taken more seriously as they move forward. The other is this kind of insider dismissal as well. So we tend to think of, say, the conservative legal movement or conservatives in general as a unified group. But really, it's a coalition. We have libertarians, kind of traditional business conservatives, and we have social conservatives. And there are various tensions that exist between those three groups, right? But there's more connections between libertarians and kind of traditional business conservatives than there are between either of those groups and Christian conservatives. That's a really good point. <laughs> and so 
there's been a, a longer dismissal of Christian conservatives within the conservative legal movement as well. A way to see this is how much space do they occupy in the Federalist Society? And the Federalist Society is the gatekeeper for the conservative legal world. If we think about the conservative legal movement as a whole, secular conservatives, if we want to say that, started organizing earlier. The secular conservative legal movement story starts really in the 1980s. And one of the, the major, if not the major, institution in this movement is the creation of the Federalist Society. So it started off as a network of conservative law students at some of the most prestigious law schools in the country coming together. Their early days, you can kind of think about them as kind of a debate club, right? They wanted to raise the profile of conservative intellectualism in the legal community. And so they would host debates and so forth. But then because there was no conservative legal organization, it quickly grew to include lawyer practice groups and national conventions and so forth. And now the easiest way to kind of see the importance of the Federal Society is that one of the leaders of the Federal Society took a leave of absence from his position with the organization to serve as the one who put together President Trump's list of judicial appointments. And that's Leonard Leo. Yes, exactly. And the reason why he's so well positioned to do that is by sitting at the top of that organization, he knows who the most highly credentialed conservatives are in the legal community, right? So he can pull from the resources of that organization to put together a list that Republican presidents can pull on. And that that predates Trump. Right. And so in the building of essentially the, the modern Christian right and its place within the GOP, you can see that a lot of those early leaders are themselves conservative Catholics. And so, you know, Paul Weyrich is, is a big one to look at. Like, he is a major player in creating the institutions that really helped lead to the ascent of conservative conservatism within the GOP. He's a conservative Catholic, right? Um, we can see the, the early roots of the National Review, right? And uh, again, conservative Catholic. And then Leonard Leo, conservative Catholic, right? And so... There's just this, when, you, when you're asking for the links kind of between these organizations and kind of Christianity and Catholicism is essentially you find conservative Catholics in leadership positions building these institutions and even being behind the architecture of what mobilizes white evangelicals to become a political constituency. The House Judiciary Committee just held hearings last week specifically about the Federal Society. And so you can see that as an example of how the Federal Society, even if it wants to keep distance from politics, is not able to anymore because Democrats kind of recognize the institution and how it exercises power now. And so it's been pulled much more kind of centrally. And so just a, another example kind of, of of what the future holds is just more politicization on, on everything around the courts. This is so interesting to hear about. I mean, you look at these these groups and these institutions, and it's, it's kind of hard to imagine uh, how they didn't exist before. But of course, they, they started at some point, right? And, and, and hearing about how they've kind of built power and influence to this point is is fascinating do do you see anything now you know what whether whether on the right or, or on the left in response to to watching this that you can kind of look at now and and see this might be building into something bigger in the future in in response to the success of of this organizing liberals or progressives have are are 
not really well positioned to respond to a group like the Federal Society in kind. Quick example. So they, there's um, the American Constitution Society. It's supposed to be kind of a response to the Federal Society on the left, right? But a big part of explaining the Federal Society's success was there were no other options for conservative lawyers, right? So once an option got created, everybody flocked to it. And that just solidified its position of power, essentially. Progressive and liberal law students have more options. There are more places they can go to meet with, congregate, and to network with other with like-minded law students and like-minded lawyers and so forth. And so there are more options. And so it's harder for a group like the American Constitution Society to occupy the same space as, say, the Federalist Society. Another thing, though, to think about with the future of the Federalist Society is, especially when we go back to talking about Leonard Leo and his role in the Trump administration, right, is one of the ways that the Federalist Society rose to power and legitimacy was by saying that it was politically neutral in various ways, that it, it wasn't going to take an active role in politics. It can't make that claim anymore, right? With Even though Leonard Leo took a leave of absence, right, that's a thin veil here, right, on the, the kind of the political links um, between the federal society and, say, between the GOP. Uh, so that... The organization's uh, kind of identity has changed over time. And I think also it's going to face the same questions that the greater GOP is going to face, which is how do they deal with Trump, right? It's easy to forget that Trump was incredibly controversial within the GOP and conservative networks just four years ago, right? They've subsequently fallen into line, but whenever Trump's kind of presidency ends, there's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a, uh, a reconsideration of, is that our identity or not? And how do we want to reestablish our identity? And the Federal Society is going to face that issue as well. That's a really interesting point. You know, I think the covering the, the politics, the uh, judges and, and the courts are, they often get covered as one of those, you know, like, a, like an olive branch from Trump to the old Republican Party. And that that is a, a reason that that the Republican Party was able to, where he was controversial before, was able to make peace with him, uh, at least the, the the folks who are still part of it. But but that doesn't really grapple with the fact that the party, the the actual like makeup of the party itself has changed over the last four years in response to Trump and what happens after and how does it affect these these institutions that have become unofficial pieces of the ecosystem around it, federal society being one of them. Think about the Federal Society as more than just this supplier of judges. They also, you know, they network conservative legal academics and so forth, and they network lawyers, and those networks lead to court cases. Those networks lead to amicus briefs. And the administration has taken controversial legal stances that that are controversial within the legal community as well, right? And so... It's, it's not like they're insulated from the greater politics of the Trump administration because so much of the so much of politics involves law, right? And the interpretation of law and the disputing of law in courts. And since the Federal Society is so tied into that for conservatives, they're gonna to have to consider what their identity is as they move forward. 
Interesting. Well, th- this is great. Thank you so much for for taking the time to chat about it. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It was my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for asking me to come on. All right, that's our show. Our producer this week is Adrian Hurst. Our senior producer is Jenny Amund, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. Subscribe to Nerdcast wherever you listen, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, check out some of our other podcasts, Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, just to name a few. And coming soon, a brand new podcast series from Politico, Global Translations. The way to bring this country to its knees is to choke off our supply. Imagine for a second our globe as a series of supply chains. Food, everyday goods, and raw materials. Zooming across the world in a single day. But what if those global supply chains suddenly ground to a halt? It's not just about finding which vaccines work. It's about preparing the manufacturing and supply chains for those. And if one little detail in those supply chains goes wrong, we might not be getting vaccines to people when they desperately need them. The global pandemic showed us what it's like when we can't get the things we need. Masks, personal protective equipment, even toilet paper. There's simply not enough raw materials. We have to figure out how to get this right. There is a bigger story behind the scarcity. We need to fight back against China. A bigger picture with implications for our future. That's going to be a major challenge. On this season of Global Translations, where has globalization fallen short? And where do we go from here? The 90s called, and their economics is not what we need now. I'm Louisa Savage. I've spent my career thinking about the global forces that shape our world. Join me and other journalists from Politico. A new season of Global Translations coming in October. Presented by City, a leading global bank. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much for listening.